So tonight, as we come to 1 Kings chapter 8, we come to what's a rather lengthy chapter. We only read one chapter the other night, verse by verse, because it's a long chapter. And in this chapter, Solomon dedicates the temple to the Lord. It took him eight years to build the temple. It's an incredible achievement and accomplishment in building the first temple of Israel. The temple stood for about 400 years. Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king, when he conquered Israel, 586 B.C., he destroyed the temple. And it was built about 986. So it just figures about 400-year reign with the temple, 400-year run with the temple, and became the central place of worship for Israel. Because previously, the central place had been in Shiloh with the old tent tabernacle, but then they built the temple there in Jerusalem. And so we studied the building last week and what it, just the commitment of, a, of a, an endeavor that takes years, you know, a start-finish task, and we looked at that. But tonight, we look at when it was dedicated. So when he dedicated the temple... The people were gathered together, all the people, the priest, everybody, and, and they brought the Ark of the Covenant, that the Ark, the gold Ark that had the Ten Commandments in it. They brought it into the Holies of Holies there in the temple. And when they did that, the glory of the Lord came upon the place. It was just a kind of glory of the Lord. His presence it was amazing. So the people were overwhelmed. And then Solomon then went on to proclaim how God had been faithful to bring the temple to pass, as he had promised his dad David, because, of course, Solomon is the son of the great King David, and then he began to say this long prayer to the Lord. And he, he started out on his hands, on, a, on his feet with his hands raised when he began the prayer. And then when he ended it, we see that he's on his knees before the Lord. It was a lengthy prayer. And in that prayer, he just prayed that really the temple would be a place of forgiveness. That when the people fell short, they would find forgiveness, cleansing, renewal, and restoration at the temple which he really made the focus of the temple to be a place where sinners are forgiven and restored and encouraged to go forward. But then in verse 54, as we go forward, at the end of his prayer, he has this blessing where he blesses the assembly. And that's what we want to look at tonight. So after he covered all this stuff, where the dedication, the Shekinah glory, forgiveness, that the temple would be like a compass for the people, no matter where they went, they could face Jerusalem like Daniel did in the book of Daniel and realize that God was with them, he was for them. And that, that was, they used to say, till next year in Jerusalem, and that was really built around the temple. And so we pick it up in verse 54 on the end of this prayer where he says, And so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to the Lord that he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees, with his hands spread up to heaven. Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all of his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all of his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. And may these words of mine, with which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day may require, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other let your heart, therefore, be loyal to the Lord our God and walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as it is to this day. So this is that blessing. It's that benediction. We see this in the Bible quite a few times. 
Even when Paul the Apostle saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts, he pronounces a blessing and a benediction over them. This is very common. Of course, Pastor Chuck used to say at Calvary, the Lord bless thee and keep thee. That's the benediction from the book of Numbers as well. So it's like a, it's like a blessing and a benediction. So Solomon's going to throw a two-week feast for everybody after this dedication, but he's just pronouncing the blessings of God upon his people, that God is for us, and he's, he's got a plan for us, and his plans are good thoughts, good plans. That's, that's what God is. That's what he has. He's a good, good father, as the song says. Solomon's dad, David, had said, taste and see that the Lord is good in one of his psalms, and even here where he says that the good word, that, that it's all come to pass of his good promise all that the Lord's going to do is good. Romans eight twenty eight says that all things work together for good to those who love him and trust in him. As we think of this text tonight, I want to, there's two ways you can look at this text and even this entire chapter. And we touched on it briefly Tuesday night. And I talked with Jennifer quite a bit about this week because the temple was a literal building for the people of covenant where God's presence literally came and was there. But once Jesus walked the earth, There with the woman at the well, she said, well, you Jews worship in Jerusalem at the temple, and we worship at Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans, which is right. And Jesus said the day is coming where we we won't worship here or there, but we will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And when he spoke these words in John chapter 4, he was indicating that the day would come when we all have a relationship with Christ, when we ask Christ into our life, and that the spirit, the same kind of glory that came upon the temple at the dedication will come into our hearts. So the Bible tells us that the New Testament believer, when we receive Christ, that we're born again of the spirit. And that's why it says in 1 Corinthians 6 that we're the temple of God if you're a follower of Christ and you've received Christ. We're told in 1 John that his spirit confirms with our spirit that we belong to the Lord. We're told in Ephesians that his spirit has sealed us like as, and is a confirmation of the promises availed to us when we step into eternity while we're going through time. So we realize that what happened with Israel in the temple in the Old Testament was this way. But once Christ rose from the grave and sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost and thousands gave their life to Christ, that the spirit of God literally comes into those who receive Christ. We don't naturally have the spirit of God. We have the spirit of man. But when we, like Jesus said, when we're born again, then the Spirit of God comes in us and we're made alive. Like the light's on and somebody's home. We've been born again. The Spirit of God is with us. So we can be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit. Or we can have the joy of the Spirit. And what makes God happy makes us happy. Whatever things are true, just, noble, and praiseworthy. Think on these things. And that's the heart of God. He never looks at anyone with a weird innuendo or a bad thought toward them or an evil thought against them, which we do. But he doesn't. That's not his nature. So the Spirit of God is working good things. So when you're walking with the Lord, walking in the light, things that are good, they, they're confirmed by our heart. But things that are evil in a society or around us, they grieve us because they grieve the Lord. And that's the difference between the saved and the unsaved. Right? So... That's worth noting in the context of this scripture because you think, what's the application of this chapter to followers of Jesus Christ? And there certainly is that application, and we touch on it Tuesday night. So you can take all that's the principle of this temple and its dedication and all these things and say, well, I'm the temple of the Lord with faith in Jesus Christ, and there would be applications. But if you really take the historical context, it really is about a place of worship collectively where God's people of covenant are gathered to meet with the Lord. 
So I think it's a better fit or a fuller fit to think about it in relation to a local church congregation. When we gather together as a local church, the principles of this temple dedication, there are things for us when we're two or more, as Jesus said, that we can really receive and grow and learn from as we think about the church of Jesus Christ and being a local church, because, of course, the church is universal. As we're gathered tonight, we realize that there are an innumerable amount of people on this planet, men and women, of many different ethnicities, of many different dialects, who are going to gather in Jesus' name in the next 24 hours. In every time zone, I would imagine, they're gathering. And I've visited the Church of Jesus Christ all over the world. I've been in church services all over the world, in different languages. Even there in Russia and Siberia three years ago, in that Baptist church, where the gulags, the prison camp used to be, where Stalin sent people like us to go to. And to be able to share my testimony with five Russian kids was amazing. There's a big body of Christ out there, way bigger than worship generation, meaning at Shoreline Baptist Church in Fountain Valley, right? We can all say yes and amen to that. But still, while there's a universal church that we're yoked and linked to, I got an update from Pasha, and they went into Ukraine, Donbass, just the last two days. I actually called them and he answered. And they were leaving in two hours in the middle of the night to go into the war region and do ministry and, and do things that we would want to do that we can't, but they can, and we help support them in that. It's a bigger body of Christ, right, that we're connected to. But in the end, Pasha mentioned they're going to be back in Moscow by Monday. So he's going to be in Vadimir, where he's from, Moscow, and these other guys are going to go where they're going to Nizhny Novgorod. And these pastors are doing the work of the Lord, and they're going to be back in their local church congregations. And by midweek of this week, there's going to be a, a Bible study group meeting in Moscow, right where the metro gets off where I've been. And they're going to be meeting in Vladimir, and they're going to be meeting in Nizhny Novgorod, and all the other places we have people we love and care about that serve Jesus around the world. And that's what we're linked to. But we're here. We're here, right? So this is our local church. And so people come and visit us. David Downs, who's been in Italy for over 15 years now doing ministry, originally from old worship generation, they've planted churches and they're in Turin now and they're doing all these things and he comes and visits us. So there's a beauty to the tapestry and the mosaic of the diversity of the body of Christ in our different flavors, our different cultures. But we're worship generation. And for 17 plus years, we've been meeting in this building since the summer of 05, gathering in Jesus' name. And in those 17 years, we've had many a dedication for younger children, uh, kids that are same as Judah's age. I've dedicated kids older than Judah, actually, in here. We've had weddings in this building. We've had memorials in this building. Right? I mean, we've had, we've wept, we've cried, we've laughed, we've danced. We've had a lot of beautiful things. Well, I danced during COVID. I remember that. But anyways, um, we've lived a human experience in this building. We have. We went outside when it was COVID. We did all that out there, and we came back inside. Like, we've done a lot here in 17 years as a local church. And so with that concept and that, co that content, that way, I really want to think about a couple things from this text tonight as they apply to a local church, because that's who we are. One, when we started this church, one of, we, you need know, to try and come up with little, like, jingles to help people remember like, pe most people prefer a Bible study with three points and, a, like, promises and his peace and his person, right? Like, we like stuff like that. It's easy to follow. When we started this church, we came up with what, reliable for truth was the first statement we had about worship generation. 
reliable for truth. Just this week, I was at a medical office, and I was speaking with a doctor who used to attend Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa with Pastor Chuck back in the day. And she, when I was talking with her and told her we're at Calvary Chapel, she got very excited and talking about stuff. And I said, well, we teach first by verse on Tuesday night, and then topically on Saturday, like Chuck used to do Sunday morning, Sunday night, we're just going through the Bible and we're in First Kings. And that's who we are at Calvary Chapel, right? Like that's kind of the DNA of a Calvary Chapel church. Is now, the, Pastor Matt from Shoreline Baptist will be here tomorrow, and he teaches through books of the Bible sometimes, and sometimes he does topicals. We can, you know, the Word of God is the Word of God. So we're not saying God's limited to, to this pattern, but I find it works really well for who I am and who we are in the body of Christ. And you look at this passage, when he's blessing the people, he says, Blessed be the Lord. So as he's blessing he's given rest to his people according to all that he promised, that has not failed one word of all of his good promise, which he promised. Three times he uses the word promise there in relation to the temple and God's faithfulness to the people. And when you think about God's promises, what are the promises? It's the word of God, reliable for truth. So as I teach through the Bible and we gather here, the central element of our church gatherings with worship generation is to grow in the faith. And faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we're going to teach the Bible. We're told in the New Testament that it works effectively in those who believe. If there's people here that aren't, haven't given their life to Christ, the word, the word of God will convict them of their sin and draw them to Christ and let them know that God has a good plan for them. God promises in Isaiah that his word doesn't return void. So I can get up and give my opinion about different social issues as they are or political things or sports things, and I get you fired up to go win a football game for USC or something, but does it touch your bone and marrow, soul, and spirit? The answer, of course, is no. There's only one thing that pierces bone and marrow and soul and spirit. And I've been in ministry 34 years, and I've seen it. I've seen a lot of different things with the authority of the Word of God. I've seen hardened men broken by the Word of God, hardened women broken by the Word of God. I've seen people resist the Word of God, right? But it's living and powerful, piercing of bone and spirit, bone and marrow. Like, so all the books that we could read of knowledge, and there's great books, and I read books, and I'm like, this author references this book. I'm like, oh, from the 50s. Like, oh, that'd be a great book to read. So I underline it. Think maybe I can find it. But really, I know the only book that's going to transform me, my soul, my being, my total human being, my spirit, mind, and body, is the word of God. Because this word goes where the other words can't go. Any other words are the words of men, right? And they, people build you up. People discourage you. Whatever they do, the opinions of men is the cheapest commodity on earth. Everyone's got one. So there's no value. But the word of God is living and powerful. So when we think about gathering in the church, this is why we spend 45 to 50 minutes every night when we gather in this place to speak the word of God, to teach it verse by verse, and let it go forth so it'll do all the things it's supposed to do that'll instruct us, correct us, and build us up, and reprove us, and encourage us, and direct us. Because your word, O oh Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But if you look at all that's in the word of God, it is summarized by the word promise three times. Because really what we... When we walk out of a gathering in the body of Christ, hopefully this is what happens in a church gathering, that you've heard the word of God and your faith is built up. And you go out with a greater sense of, of, of purpose and direction and vision and comfort. That's what the word of God does. I've mentioned a few times, but uh, Keith, who attends here, gave me the Bible Promise book. It's a book of all the Bible promises. And it goes topically, but alphabetically. So like, a is for assurance, right? Like, so Bible verses on assurance. 
and it's a living Bible from back in the 60s, so it's really easy, smooth read to read. And just if, I don't read it every day. I, I read it in the evening about every two or three nights, but I was reading um, the, the part about being saved by faith, all the, the passages about how if we believe in Jesus that we're saved. And I just couldn't believe how many passages, they're all there, and I'm reading them. It's just so edifying, like the assurance that God wants us to have, that I know I'm saved, and I know who I'm serving. And so these are the promises of God. John said in 1 John, I've written these things that you might know who you believed in and be assured that you have saving grace in him. So it's important. Now, you can read the Bible on your own, and you should read the Bible on your own daily, like I do. I was in Daniel today, two chapters of Daniel, all the stuff about the prophecies in the back end that are hard to understand. But I was reading them. But we want to come to church at least once a week, hopefully a couple times a week, certainly once a week, and as the Bible says, not forsake the assembling of the brethren. And we're told there in Acts that they continued daily, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So the foundation of the early church was to study the apostles' doctrine, the word of God. So my job is fairly simple. I'm like the quarterback. It's like, hey, throw passes. Complete your, complete, throw the ball. Like, run the football. Like, teach the Bible. I don't, I don't get up here like, oh, what am I doing? I'm teaching topically from what I taught, verse by verse, earlier in the week. That's what I'm called to do. When they wanted to distract the apostles from, not distract, but they could get distracted by other things, they said in chapter 6 of Acts, we're supposed to study the word of God and be in prayer. And so to come here with the word of God and, and present the word of God in a corporate sense, so God is speaking to all of us collectively as a church family. See, when you hear K-Wave or hear something on the radio or read a book on your own, or that's scriptural, if you will, or listen to an old pastor Chuck study, something like that, it's good for you. But you see, there's something God does when he speaks to us collectively in a group setting. There's something happens when he's speaking to a local congregation, those promises. And Solomon is proclaiming these promises to that congregation in that place. It's a literal place at a literal time. And so when we gather here, we come to hear the word of God, and we come to hear the promises. And the promises will always build us up. They will always correct us. Even if you feel like God's reproving you or rebuking you, which he's done to me a lot in my journey, for sure, it's always for good. Like, the world's better if Joey Brand's rebuked and reproved. Wouldn't you agree and say yes and amen? Yeah. I'll start with me, and you can worry about you when you look in the mirror tomorrow. Okay? But the world's a better place. Everything that God's done to refine me and humble me and crush me has been for good to the benefit of my marriage and my children and the churches I've pastored. So when we think about coming to church and we think that we're coming to a place where we hear the promises of God and we hear the word of God and ultimately it's the promises that we go forth from. So I want you to, like when you come to church, be excited to come to church. Like what's God going to speak Pastor Brandon was at the Calvary Conference recently, and he mentioned Don McClure, and I said, oh, I love Pastor Don. There's just certain pastors, when you hear them, they have a frequency where they speak, and just somehow, it, it just ministers to you. And when Don McClure was at Calvary Costa Mesa years ago on Wednesday nights, he, he, he just has a frequency that God speaks to me through Don McClure, and always built, built me up. And that's how we want to be. We want to hear that word from the pulpit, and be built up by those promises 
in a healthy church, we're going to leave built up and encouraged by the word of God, which ultimately is the promises of God to humanity for what he's done in and through the person and the work of Jesus Christ and what he's going to do. So the foundation of the corporate gathering is the blessings of the promises of his word. The second thing we see in this uh, corporate gathering is the assurance of his presence. Now, he says, may the Lord. So Solomon says in verse 57, may the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us. Now, that was a different covenant because we're told and promised in the New Testament. Jesus said, wherever two or more gather in his name, he is there with us. Plus, on an individual level, he says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. In Hebrews 13, he, he takes the Old Testament passage, the Holy Spirit, and says, he will never leave us nor forsake us. So even if you're all alone, when Paul was all alone, he said, no one stood with me, but the Lord stood with me and delivered me from the mouth of the lion. He will always deliver me. So even if you feel like you're just all alone and no one is with you, Jesus promises to the believer, to the one he's redeemed, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We might feel alone standing before a judge or being marched off to be executed because a lot of Christians have been executed in 2,000 years. And Jesus said, don't be surprised because the world hates you because they hated me first. Like, when you read the history of the church, you realize there might be times you are alone. But we're never alone because we have Christ. And his spirit confirms that, we're, that he's with us. And that's where our faith is, is proven. So on an individual level, we know that the Lord is going to never leave his people individually. But we're also told he's always with his people collectively. Then in the book of Revelation, there in chapters 2 and 3, when he's writing the seven churches of Asia, which is modern Turkey, he, he says he walks in the midst of the church. We may not think about this, but when we're gathered here, we know that Christ is with us. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows everything going on in our life. And at any given time when you're in ministry, particularly as a pastor and you teach regularly, there's just some nights, you know, it's, you're just like a pitcher and you can't throw a strike. You know, it's just some nights it's just not going your way. By the way, that's when you're really glad you're teaching the Bible. Because it's better to be looking for your strike zone and, and still be teaching truth than to be something you concocted and you're really in trouble. So when I go home discouraged, like, like God, that was the lamest Bible study ever. I still know I read the Bible I taught the Bible, and I had applications from the text. So it can still do what it's supposed to do. But I say this fairly often in difficult circumstances in the ministry. I look up and over to see. We would see the sound room up here, but on certain nights, it were just like, ah, it's just such a battle tonight. Because, you know, some nights it's like, ah, you just feel it. Sometimes you're like, man, did you feel it tonight? Of course I felt it. Sometimes it's, ah, it's a joyful night, right? It's just the way life is. But I look up and over to the right hand. See, I just like, I, by faith, I just see the throne of God right up there. And I find the courage to do funerals for nine-year-olds. I find the courage to do whatever is required of me in the most difficult of circumstances. I look up and over. That's what I've done for 34 years. We just got it. You got to get through it. I just look up and over. So if you ever see me just looking up, you're like, oh, he's looking at Jesus right now. And that's not a bad thing, of course. It's a good thing. But his presence is with us. So I look up and over to remind me that Jesus is with us. He's in the midst of his church. And I pray before services, and many of us pray that God would move by his spirit in our midst to, to give us a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom to just speak to us and, and guide us in our journey. But he's not going to leave us nor forsake us. It's the assurance of his presence. 
In fact, in Matthew, when he gave the Great Commission, Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you always till the end of the age. He's always with us. So when we gather in this place, he's with us. And there is something about the central place of worship for his presence. Like, I can tell you he's with you in your car when you're listening to the radio and you gotta, you're listening to something like K-Web and you got to go into court. It's, a, it's an ugly thing. It's a contractor. They didn't do their job right or whatever. It could be anything. And you, 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 like, you got to know he's with you. But there's something about the, the corporate setting. I always go back to 9-11 when the day it happened. It's been 21 years. And Pastor Chuck was up in Northern California. Pastor Brian Burson was in D.C. of all places. Susan Branch was in New York on 9-11. We teach our women's ministry. Her story of 9-11 is just unbelievable. It's just, it's not even, well, it's Susan Branch, so it is believable. But if, you, if it's anyone with Susan Branch, you almost can't even believe it. But it's, it's amazing. But that day, when we saw everything on the TV about 7.30 in the morning, I put my suit and tie on. I went to Big Calvary because I thought, you know, they're going to come by the thousands today to the house of the Lord. I'm sure of it. And people did. People, I, I got there to the, st- to the church and I said, look, you guys, hey, listen, people, open those doors. People are going to be coming all day. People are, the people are be coming all day. Open those doors. They're going to come to the house of the Lord looking for answers and we're going to give them the word of God. And I'm telling you, thousands of people came to 3800 South Fairview Avenue, Santa Ana that day. I will never, ever forget that day. All day long, just in droves, people coming and going, sobbing. It... And then it was a National Day of Prayer a couple days after 9-11. Remember, Bush was the president. We had that National Day of Prayer. Chuck was back by that time, and we had this whole service. Some of you might have been there. And it was packed and overflowing. Everything was packed. And why? Because the church, the sanctuary, represented that presence of the Lord. That God is, this is where the Lord's going to be. And we talk about this. When you have tragedies and calamities around the world, so often people flee to the house of worship, whatever it might be. So you have a huge earthquake in Acapulco and everyone runs to the local Catholic parish or something. It's a natural thing to want to to go to a certain place. This, the temple in the Old Testament was that place. The compass said the temple of God. And for us, the church is that place. That's what made it so hard during the last couple of years where it seemed like the church was singled out to be attacked during a difficult time or closed when the church is meant to be a place of comfort and encouragement and edification and peace. No pastor could have known what to expect three years before three years ago. In December 2019, when I was, my mom was stepping into eternity, I had no idea what was around the corner and who could have known. But see, you don't realize how much you appreciate something that's taken from you. And you had the presence of the Lord at home, watching online or doing all the things that you did. But when you came here, it was different, wasn't it? First couple weeks of Zoom, I'm like, look at this, this is kind of cute. After a month, I'm like, man, Shoot that, man. That is no substitute for God in Jesus' name. That is the worst. That's oh, oh. The devil hates it when his people gather, the Lord's people gather. See, we are like coals. And you separate the coals, they die quicker, but when you keep them together, as they, they heat each other up as iron sharpens iron. And church fellowship is so important. It's just the supreme thing to gather together as collective believers. And if you can gather publicly like we can in this building. And gather free from worrying about 
KGB or FESBA, which is now KGB, FSB in Russia, or whatever it might be. When I was in Russia, like, hey, you cannot get up and preach, you have a tourist visa, and FESBA will be there. They come to our pastor's conference, basically KGB, FSB, FESBA. I'm like, wow, I'd like to do church and have, like, FESBA in the congregation. But the rest of the church didn't mind. They just did what they were doing, singing praise songs in Russian. Same songs we sing, but with Russian. Man. The central place of worship is important because it is the place of the promises of God's word affirmed to our souls collectively, but it's the place of God's presence reminded to us collectively. And that's why it's so important to just keep gathering, keep coming together, two or more, to build up one another and encourage one another. So as he pronounced the blessings, he went to the promises of of his presence and, well, the promises of his presence you know, the promises of his word and then the assurance of his presence. Then the third thing we see is in verse 58, that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. That he might incline our hearts. What an interesting phrase. To incline our hearts. The Bible says the heart's deceitfully wicked, and who can know it? The heart's a scary thing. It's the inner man, the inner woman. It's who we really are. The heart's not the intellect. We always say, like, when, when, when you have a broken heart <laughs> in a relationship, hey, you don't have a headache. Oh, I got such a headache. She, she broke my head. Like, what guy ever said that? Or he broke my head. Don't you understand? Like, he broke my head. There's no, there's no dramas on TV about breaking the head. There's plenty of dramas about breaking the heart. The heart is just a... It's hard to understand. It's a physical organ, but somehow it's the very essence of who we are. From the heart, the buns of a heart, doesn't matter what women speak. Our words reveal what's in our heart. It's, it's who we really are. And here we're told in the collective gathering of the temple, so we say the collective gathering of a local church, that he may incline our hearts to himself. When we gather as a church family, God's spirit is wanting to incline our hearts to him. He's wanting us to agree with what he has, that we, where our attitudes and thoughts are wrong, he wants to bring our attitudes and thoughts and make them right. Where there's any crooked path, he wants to make it straight. Where there's any valley of unbelief, he wants to fill it with faith. That he wants to incline our hearts, who we really are, towards him and toward himself. See, look, it says that he may incline our hearts to himself. So you see, when we're gathered in Jesus' name, it's not about some theological end or some doctrinal arrival or some political positions, if you will. That's never the end. The end objective of gathering in the local church is to be the body gathered on the head, that the spirit and the word is moving us toward him, that we don't come to church to, or we shouldn't, to be enthralled by a dynamic speaker or amazing worship We come to church because the Holy Spirit wants to point us toward Jesus and make us like Jesus and that he'll incline our hearts to be in agreement with Jesus and the things of the Lord. That's really what, when we gather collectively, it's to move us collectively in the right direction toward the kingdom because no other gathering equals a local church gathering in Jesus' name. I mean, obviously like a harvest crusade or something like that, but we could be at a, a... a big-time football game. Like, like Clemson-Wake Forest had a big game today. We, we could have been to that game. And there's a lot of believers at that game because everyone in the South is a believer, right? 
being facetious, but you know, like the coach that comes in Dabo Sweeney is very well-known Christian, very outspoken Christian. So in that stadium, the game was at Wake Forest, but in that stadium, remember I lived in Virginia, that was where I came from, but in that stadium, there would have been like hundreds, if not thousands of people that are born again, who love Jesus, but they weren't gathered for that. They were gathered for football, ACC football. That's, it was all about football. It wasn't about Jesus. When we're gathered, so it was about like winning the football game. But when we're gathered here, it's all about Jesus and that the Spirit is inclining our hearts to himself. He's drawn us to himself. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. So in case I forget what the play is, I'm in the huddle with Jesus. It's like, hey, draw men to myself. Like when it's like, hey, just get back on track, quit your rabbit trails, and just point people to Jesus. We're, we're gathering to see Jesus lifted up. If a church gathers, a local group of believers gathered, you know, with underground or with FESBA in the audience or whatever it might be, or the Chinese Communist Party in your state church or Pambua, whatever, wherever it is, if you're gathered as the church and you're singing and worshiping or, and you're praying or whatever, like, in the end, when you walk, you leave that place, Jesus should have been lifted up. In Brother Andrew's book, uh, the sp- he was... Uh, God Smuggler, it's a famous book, Brother Andrew, who used to, during the Iron Curtain, he'd go in Romania and Eastern Europe and all those places, and he'd visit these churches, and, and he'd bring Bibles in. The stories of Brother Andrew, it's, a, it's actually a Christian classic, God Smuggler. But the, the, the Romanians and the Eastern Europeans during communism, they, they, Brother Andrew would be there, and he'd be in a house, and the curtains would be drawn, and 45 minutes apart, the different believers of a small village would come to the house. And they'd worship the Lord in the basement, do everything. And then 45 minutes apart, they'd go home and go out of their way. Go home. True story. So when they were gathered, what were they gathered to do? They were gathered to be, have their hearts inclined to Jesus. Because he's the author and finisher of our faith, and all things are made by him and for him, and him all things consist, and are held together. That's the end all. That's, that's the highest objective. We can do that in our car. We can do that in our living room with a good cup of coffee or whatever. But in the end, Jesus wants us to gather with other believers and do it together. So when we're singing worship songs or having communion, we're doing it together. We can do life together. We can do the dedications. We can do the pastoral ordinations. We can do praying for people as they're moving to Texas or Idaho or wherever they're going because a lot of people have gone. We can do all those things. And we share the experience. But ultimately, what do we put over all these things? Praying for the Frisbees. Praying for the Phillips coming in. Pastor Brandon and his family. It's Jesus over everything. To incline our hearts to Jesus. The Frisbees are leaving and we're very sad. To incline our hearts to Jesus. The Phillips have come in to help lead this congregation to incline our hearts toward Jesus. To pray for Judah, to incline our hearts toward Jesus. What really matters with his life? To incline our hearts to Jesus. His heart would be inclined to Jesus. And that the word of God, the statutes, the commandments, would move his heart, move our hearts. See, he's in the beginning of that journey. And many of us are on the fourth quarter of that journey. And to incline our hearts to Jesus. And that's why we gather. It's not the same. It's just not the same. It's not the same to just hear a good Bible study or hear a beautiful song on the radio, whatever, or, or your, whatever it is. It's not the same. God does something when we're gathered together as a church family in a certain corporate setting. 
And in that setting, we experience life in the church. We, we, in a sense, remember the legacy that we've come from, and we see the destiny that's in front of us. That's what we do. Here in the same building in the last six months, we've committed some people we love to the Lord very much that are gone and no longer in the congregation. They finished their journey, and in the same year, we're committing Judah to the Lord, beginning his journey. Isn't that amazing? That's how he gathers the church. This is the house of the Lord. That's what we do in the house of the Lord. I'll pray for Judah tomorrow at the picnic, but the park in Yorba Linda is not the same as the sanctuary in the house of the Lord. Someone asked me about doing communion at a wedding recently and asked my opinion about doing communion. I said, if it's outdoors, probably not. I've done so many weddings. It's just, it's, it, it, it's, it's, you can do it. It's okay if you want to do it, but it's, you know, the trains go by, all these things are happening that you have no control over. But if you're doing it in the sanctuary, then that's a good fit. It's a better fit. See, I've never been asked my opinion about communion in a wedding ceremony until just a few weeks ago, in 34 years. I said, well, honestly, if it's at a wedding venue or it's outdoors or whatever, I've seen it go, it's fine. Uh, but I would say it doesn't have the same flow as if you're doing it in a sanctuary. If you're in the sanctuary getting married and then you have communion, it just, it just, it's got a little more flow to it. The cadence is like, it just flows. Outdoors. You ever try to do unity candles outdoors, by the way? Anyone from the 80s? Oh, my goodness. Switching to sand was a brilliant idea, whoever came up with that one. And finally, the last thing is the power of the Lord. It says in uh, the latter verses here, hang on, verse 59. So that he may, that he may, that he may not, says in verse 59, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day may require. Oh, I could have almost done a full message on just this verse. How's that as each day may require? This is why I love teaching the same passage twice in one week. I did not even catch this on Tuesday night. As each day may require that God would maintain your cause, our cause, your individual cause, the injustices you face at work, the injustices you face in society, the injustices you face in a courtroom or just all the crooked things on planet Earth to know that the Lord is for you and that he's saying that each day that he may maintain the cause of his people each day. What a wonderful passage. But I draw your attention to the first part of it. The cause, maintain the cause. There is absolute right and wrong, and we know that. And the word of God makes clear absolute right and wrong. There's truth and there's falsehood. And there's ways to kind of find middle ground and and commonality and things like that. We understand that. But when it comes to eternity and salvation and the person and the work of Jesus and absolute truth, there's right and there's wrong. There's either truth or there's falsehood. And there's not a middle ground. See, so much of what's going on in the last 20 years on planet Earth, not just America, is to create an ambu- ambiguous middle ground. It's like if you eliminate the middle class, you just have a couple of people running everything and everyone else is at their mercy, a totalitarian state. If you eliminate the genders, male and female, and you create multiple genders, you just confuse everything. And that's what it all is. It's all demonic. It is demonic. I said that a couple of weeks ago, and I listened to this today. I go, that's a pretty strong word. Am I willing to go to jail for it? Yes, I am. Because it is demonic. Have you not read? Jesus said how he made them, male and female. So all these other things that's confused the whole generation. It's just it's ambiguity. You know, so you walk into Target, and here's boys dressed like girls. 
in the photos. Like, that's just to create confusion. There's truth and there's falsehood. There's light and there's darkness. There's right and there's wrong. And listen, men come up with all their things, as Solomon said. There's a way that seems right to men, but the end thereby is death. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no shot of turning with the Father promises to whom we must all give an account. There is right and there is wrong. And more often than not, followers of Jesus Christ are demonized. It began in the first century under Nero. <laughs> you talk about the Great Reset. Nero is the ultimate Great Reset. Burn it all, blame it on the Christians, and I can build my empire the way I want to. How's that for a reset? That's old school reset. Burn it all, blame it on the Christians, and then I can do what I want to do as a totalitarian dictator over planet Earth. There's nothing new under the sun, like Solomon said. But you see... We could lose heart because Jesus said, if the world hates you, don't be surprised who hated me first. But then we come into the house of the Lord. You can hear a radio study. You can hear a teaching on podcasts. You can read a book about like, ah, oh, the persecution of the saints, Fox's Book of Martyrs. You can be encouraged by Hugh Latimer and what he went through. But in the end, when you gather in the house of the Lord and maybe you're being uh, ostracized because of your faith, maybe you're, you're being attacked because of your convictions and these sorts of things. But you see what Solomon prayed here, this fourth thing, that, that we be reminded that God has the final say. And his truth will always be truth. He doesn't change. There's no shadow of turning with the Father of life. He's God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He's not going to change. And in a universe where he's Lord over it all, he's not going to change. It's impossible for God to lie. And he's light, Morally. And he's not going to change. So when we come to the house of the Lord and the word of God, the promises go forth as his presence is assured to us, as we realize he's drawn us to his person, to himself, we realize he's going to maintain the right cause, that he's truth, and it's going to come to pass. Just rereading Daniel, where all those kingdoms rise up and Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue, that guy was mowing the grass out of his mind. And all those kingdoms, the mountain Lord smashes them. God is not mocked. He'll have the final say on everything. There will be perfect, there's not perfect justice on planet Earth. There will be perfect justice in eternity. And he maintains a just cause. And so I think Psalm 73 said it best. When the psalmist came into the house of the Lord, he said, all the injustices I see, all the, when they call good evil and evil good and right wrong and wrong right, and it's all twisted and it's all ambiguous and it's all so confusing that we can't even get Supreme Court justice to say this is a woman and that's a man. But then you come into the house of the Lord. Psalm 73. Then I wouldn't, I would have lost heart that it's just pure insanity. What evil men and deceived men follow and women under the leading of the devil, who is taking them captive to do his will, as it says in the New Testament. But until I came into the house of the Lord, and then I was reminded the end of the wicked, and that there is a justice for the right. And you see, that's what Solomon's saying here. That when they come to this temple, that they'll know that you maintain the cause of your servants. And that you, you, you will maintain their cause as each day requires. So even if there's an injustice at work or an injustice in society or an injustice because of this or that or whatever. You know that God knows and he'll maintain the cause. See, when we come to the house of the Lord, it's not about 
all the talking heads. My dad's an interesting man, as you know. He's 92 now. But the last, he, he's, when he was living on his own in his early 80s, he used to turn the TV off, not turn it off, but turn the volume down and watch the news. And he goes, they're just talking heads. I don't really say, yeah, you just look at them. <laughs> they're just talking heads. So you just turn the volume down and you just realize they're just talking heads. They just blah, blah, blah. And the multitude of words, sin's not lacking. They're just talking heads. Let God be true and every man a liar. God will have the final say. Let God maintain the cause of his church. And let God maintain the cause of you personally. So if, the, if, if, if governments are saying you can't gather, if governments are saying you can't sing, if governments are saying that, you know, this and that, whatever, let God maintain the cause of his church. Let God maintain the cause of his church. Let him be the head and let us be the body. And, and let us trust him and look to him in all things. And that's why we gather as a local church. Because collectively we're reminded that we're not in it alone. See, everyone's like, I'll close with this thought, but, you know, Pasha was just here from Russia. He had to go through like 10 different airports to get here. And we were riding electric bikes. And it was great. Jennifer got to meet Pasha and his daughter and all that. And, and you realize the Russians are not our enemies. Okay? They're not our enemies. They're people just like us. And these people love Jesus. These people love Jesus just like us. They didn't do this. They didn't, they didn't do what Stalin did. They didn't do what Putin's doing. You know, they're just people just like us. They're people like us. And what was really hard watching the World Surfing Games this week is that there's no Russian team. And those Russian surfers couldn't be there, and they're people just like us. They're people just like us. That's what coming to church reminds us of. That whatever seems unjust because of ethnicity, skin color, gender, anything else, when we come to this house of the Lord, we realize he promised, he promised, his promise, his word, his word, his word, his presence. He's got our back. And we're reminded that when we gather in this place. We get our perspective that he's going to maintain our cause. So you don't fear that lawsuit. You don't fear this court case. You don't fear this thing, this judge, this threat, these people. Most of what we worry about never comes to pass anyways. But our eyes looking into Jesus, and we know he's got it. And if something seems unfair that happens to us, we got to know he's allowed it. And it's got a good plan for time and eternity. That's the house of the Lord. That's what Solomon prayed for his people of covenant 3,000 years ago when they looked at the temple. And that is what I'd pray and hope for all of us 3,000 years later when we gather in this building twice a week in Jesus' name. As a local church, part of the universal church of Jesus Christ, part of the Calvary Chapel movement, worship generation, meaning a Baptist church in Fountain Valley. It's who we are. It's who we've been. And we're in a new season. And I'm looking forward to everything God has for us. And I'm hoping we'll all just continue this journey together, you know, until till the trumpet sounds. Amen.